Last time we spoke about the absolutely horrifying account of the withdrawal of Japanese forces involved in Operation Sago, and how Unit 731 aided them by resorting to biological warfare. We then talked about the Japanese attacks on the American shipping lane along their western coastal waters, and the multiple attempts by the Japanese to attack the American western coast. Although it amounted to no real significant damage, the terror inflicted upon the American populace was so great that it contributed to the Battle of Los Angeles, a rather embarrassing episode for America. In the end, we finished off with a rather heartwarming story between the pilot Nabuo Fujita and the Oregon town of Brookings. But today, we're going to be venturing back to what the Japanese will soon call Green Hell the New Guinea campaign. General Douglas MacArthur and the Australians are about to make a major push. This episode is the invasion of Bunagona. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast, week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if you're still hungry after all that for some more Pacific War content, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War channel over at YouTube, where I have a few videos going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s, all the way to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Let's go back in time to about three weeks ago. General Marshall and Admiral King had worked out a compromise and agreed to a three-phase offensive through the Solomons and New Guinea, with a final strike to be targeting Rabal. The orders were distributed on July the 2nd. Task 1 was to be, quote, The seizure and occupation of Santa Cruz Islands, Tulagi, and adjacent positions. This would remain under the command and authority of Admiral Nimitz and his sub-theater commander, Admiral Gormley. Tasks 2 and 3 involved the capture of Japanese airfields on the northeast coast of New Guinea, followed by the seizure and occupation of Rabaul. And that one would be, of course, under General Douglas MacArthur. In order to keep Task 1 entirely within Gormley's domain, the line borders of the South Pacific and the Southwest Pacific areas were moved one degree westward to the latitude of 159 east, skirting the west end of Guadalcanal. Now, Gormley and MacArthur both complained they did not have the necessary resources to pull off their task straight away, and they begged for extensions to the deadlines. Gormley and MacArthur had a hasty conference in Melbourne, where they cited a lack of trained amphibious troops, a shortage of adequate shipping, and insufficient land-based bombers and fighters. They also noted that with the number of Japanese air reconnaissance going on in the region, it was highly unlikely they could achieve surprise. 
Admiral King was disappointed with Gormley and simply pissed off with General MacArthur because General MacArthur. King would say to Marshall, I take note that about three weeks ago, MacArthur stated that he could push right through to Rabal. Confronted with the concrete aspects of the task, he now feels that he not only cannot undertake this extended operation, but not even the Tulagi operation. In the end, Admiral King refused to entertain their pleas for more time. But he did offer something. He would give them more naval support in the form of a carrier task force built around the carriers Saratoga, Wasp, and Enterprise. On the other side of this war, stunned by their defeat at Midway, the IGN was worried the Americans would begin performing operations in their home waters. They had formed Operation FS, the planned invasion of New Caledonia, Fiji, and Samoa set for July, but this had to be postponed, and ultimately, it would be cancelled two months later. The troops earmarked for these invasions received orders to stand down, and await further orders in early June. On June the 7th, a meeting of the operation staff of both the IGN and the IGA agreed they had to perform research urgently to figure out if Port Moresby could be invaded by an overland route. On June the 12th, the IGA HQ gave orders to Lieutenant General Harakichi Hiyakutake, commander of the recently formed 17th Army based out of Rabaul begin cooperating with the IGN to devise a plan for the capture of Port Moresby. Now, the 17th Army was rather small. It consisted of the South Seas Detachment, the Oba Detachment, the Kawaguchi Detachment, the 41st Regiment, one tank company from the 2nd Tank Regiment, one Mountain Artillery Battalion, one Heavy Artillery Battalion, and two Anti-Aircraft Battalions. And while that might sound big, it, it was not not for a army group. But they would have the support of Admiral Yamamoto's combined fleet, including the 4th Fleet of Admiral Inoue, the Kirobutai of Admiral Nagumo, and the 2nd Fleet of Admiral Kondo. Lieutenant General Kayakutake and his staff were rather shocked when Operation FS was cancelled, but they were quickly given the difficult task of performing the overland drive across the Owen Stanley Range towards Port Moresby. But after the losses at Coral Sea and Midway, they would not be able to rely upon amphibious invasions. Because of the change situation in the Pacific, the admirals of the IGN began to think they should aim their efforts westward against the British Empire. The British were suffering from a lot of setbacks in the North African campaign at this time. Both the Germans and Italians were begging the Japanese to coordinate with them to stop American and British reinforcements moving towards Egypt via the Indian Ocean. Basically, the Axis wanted Japan to erect an enormous naval blockade of East Africa. Now, you would think, well, of course, that is a no-brainer. But you can't forget, the American Pacific Navy is only getting bigger and bigger every single month and the IGN can't afford to not keep their forces consolidated in the Pacific theater to thwart any major American thrusts. On top of asking the impossible in Africa, their Axis allies were also begging Japan to open up a new front with the USSR. 
They thought that Japan could at least take Vladivostok, but the Hokushinran idea to push northwards through Manchuria would be a colossal feat, something they simply could not afford to do. Seriously, those of you who are listening might have been part of a Discord discussion in which I was asked by the Kings and Generals community questions such as, what would have happened if Hokushinran occurred? particularly during Operation Barbarossa. Now, not to get into all the nitty-gritty details, because it would really take me forever, but this is a ridiculous idea. The IJA simply could not handle this operation, and ultimately, even during Operation Barbarossa, it most likely would not have led to the collapse of the USSR. Shocking to some of you, I bet. Now, for those of you clutching your keyboards, if you want to know more about this, I decided a long time ago to tackle this question and other major questions the KNG community had for me. If you go over to my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, I have begun basically a new podcast series where I discuss with some of my colleagues the various questions that were asked of me by the Kings and Generals community on their Discord and many other questions that I took from polls. So if you go there now, you'll find an episode on what if Hoko Shinran occurred? What if Pearl Harbor went differently or did not happen at all? And the classic that everyone wanted to hear about, what if Japan won the Battle of Midway? They're all about an hour long each, and they're actually quite good. And it's not just a podcast. I put overlays, clips from movies, and a lot of memes, because I love to make jokes. So if you want to check that out, you know what? It would mean a lot to me. And please, if you have any subjects or questions that you want to feed to me, just go over to my YouTube channel and slam those comments on some video. Anywhere, really. Back to the story at hand. The Japanese had a non-aggression pact with the USSR, and they really did not want to break that. So the IGN could not help the Axis with Africa, and the IGA could not help them with the Soviets. The Japanese would end up sending a grand total of two submarines into the Indian Ocean. Yeah. By August, these two submarines managed to sink 22 merchantmen for a total of 99,068 tons. Something that was actually an excellent result for the Japanese. But in reality, it was completely mediocre when you compare it to its Axis ally, Germany, who was performing some of the most horrifyingly effective submarine warfare. Overall, during the Pacific War, the Japanese unbelievably dropped the ball with utilizing their submarine forces to take down any of the naval commerce of the Allies. I've probably said it countless times in this series, but the major reason for this was the IGN doctrine of using submarines for offensive operations only. They simply only wanted to use submarines in the big naval battles against warships. They never saw them as being anything more than scouting vehicles and while offensive weapons. They didn't want to use them to hit commercial vessels. There's a ton of quotes lying around from high-ranking officials in the IGN that said it was un-samurai-like to do so. While the Americans were using their submarines almost exclusively to hit Japanese commercial vessels, and that was one of the major reasons Japan lost the Pacific War. They were literally squeezed to death on their home islands from supplies. Now going back to New Guinea, Hayakutake and his staff were conducting research looking for an overland route to attack Port Moresby. 
Two Japanese reconnaissance flights from the 25th Air Flotilla on June the 27th and the 30th reported finding a, quote, Road passable by motor transport between Buna and Kokuda. This supposed road was located a little less than halfway to Port Moresby in the upper reaches of the mountain range. The reconnaissance pilots claimed to have spotted a 10-foot wide road that wound 3 miles from Buna until narrowing into a 3-foot wide road for another 6 miles. After that road, the jungle canopy simply hid the rest from any possible view. The pilots also gave another account. There is a road passable by motor transport between Buna and Kokuda. There is a bridge over the Kumusi River, passable by motor transport to the east of Papki. This road is in flat terrain, devoid of ravines, that are passable by motor transport in areas where difficulties would arise. The final leg of the trip is judged to be passable by motor transport that proceeds to Port Moresby. It's a good thing the pilots never had to travel on those supposed roads, as the U.S. Army would note after the war this. Actually, the Buna Moresby Road was nothing but a native trail which alternatively ran through the jungle swamps and over precipitous mountains. Throughout the entire campaign, the use of vehicular transport was out of the goddamn question. Regardless, based on rather faulty reconnaissance intel, a Japanese convoy weighing anchor at Rabal on July the 20th headed west for New Guinea. Aboard two high-speed army transports were 2,000 men led by Colonel Yosuke Yokoyama. Amongst them were engineers, infantry, and mountain artillery specialists. A third transport carried 300 SNLF Marines and 800 construction units. These army and naval units were the advance party, whose task was to establish a beachhead near Buna and then proceed as quickly as possible towards Kokuda, prior to the arrival of what would be the main force. They were also going to have to determine the best overland route, repair its roads as needed, and stockpile ordinances along the way for the follow-up units. One of MacArthur's B-17s reported sighting these ships north of Rabal heading west, but the pilots lost them during some really bad weather. Allied aircraft tried to follow this up as best as they could, but were limited by, well, very bad weather. So the transports made their way 90 miles east of Salamawa until some more Allied bombers sighted them and tried to hit them without managing to land a single hit. At 6pm, the escorts for the transports began shelling Buna and nearby Gona. Then on July the 21st, the army troops landed at a place called Basabua, just a short distance from Buna village, while the naval units landed at Gona. By the time Allied bombers found the invaders, most of the landing parties were already ashore. The Japanese wasted no time quickly unloading their supplies, including some anti-aircraft guns, which they hid in a nearby jungle, out of sight. For the next few days, a stream of B-17s, B-26s, and some P-39s began hammering the Japanese landing zones, but with very limited results. One transport and one destroyer suffered some damage, but all the ships were able to withdraw in the end. 
On July the 26th, more troops went ashore from a destroyer, followed up three days later by troops from two other transports, a light cruiser and another destroyer. On July the 30th, Allied bombers managed to sink a single transport, but it was empty. Colonel Yakoyama ordered a reconnaissance party up the first road he saw. The die was cast. It is somewhat ironic, but the first opposition the Japanese would face was not American nor Australian, but rather the native New Guinea soldiers of the Papuan Infantry Battalion, abbreviated for PIB. The PIB ambushed the reconnaissance party, but were quickly driven back by overwhelming firepower. By the end of August, 13,500 Japanese troops would land in Buna and Gona. Now I'd like to take this time to talk a little bit about this place, Kokuda. Kokuda lies about 50 miles from Buna and slightly more than 100 miles northeast of Port Moresby. The village is situated in the Yoda Valley, which is in the northern foothills of the Owen Stanley Range, around 1,200 feet above the sea level. In 1942, it was home to a small native population, a government post, a rubber plantation, and a small airfield nearby. That airfield was the only one in the Papuan portion of New Guinea between Port Moresby and the northeastern coast. That little airfield was the most important feature to New Guinea as far as the military is concerned. It allowed a military to fly in reinforcements and supplies while denying it to the enemy. The Allies held this airfield, and it became clearly obvious the Japanese intended to take the airfield for themselves to supply their troops and get past those tricky mountains. The official Australian history of the New Guinea campaign describes the link that connects Port Moresby through Kokuda to the Buna and Gona area as a, quote, primitive foot track. They also said those using the roads were, quote, barefoot natives or occasionally a missionary, a patrolling officer of the Papuan administration, or some wandering European. They go on to describe the road in quite some length. Most of it was narrow, mud-filled trails winding through the jungles, going across streams and rivers, and up the sides of mountains to heights as high as 7,000 feet. The mountain trails cling to the sides of crevices, which got very narrow, overlooking falls going hundreds of feet down, if not thousands, crashing into some rivers. It could get so narrow that two men would not be able to pass another. The American Army official history claims, quote, The Japanese could scarcely have chosen a more dismal place in which to conduct a campaign. It often rains as high as 150 200, and even 300 inches per year. And during the rainy season, daily falls of 8 or 10 inches are not uncommon. The terrain, as varied as it is difficult, is a military nightmare. Towering saw-toothed mountains, densely covered by mountain forest and rainforest, alternate with flat malarial, coastal areas made up of matted jungle, reeking swamps, and broad patches of knife-edged kunai grass four to seven feet high. The heat and humidity in the coastal areas are well-nigh unbearable, and in the mountains there is a biting cold at altitudes 
of over 5,000 feet. So this place really sucked. And alongside all that fun that they had mentioned, there was leeches everywhere, trees covered with poisonous insects and arachnids and snakes. I mean, the variety of animals was incredible. You had crocodiles, lizards, snakes, anteaters, something called a tree kangaroo, which I've never heard of in my life until now, wallabies, which are cute, butterflies with 12-inch wingspans, and over 600 different types of birds, including the 5-foot-tall cassowary an angry little devil that can kill you by slicing you open with their clawed feet. It's like, my god, it sounds like a velociraptor. But I mean, like, I don't think it could kill a grown human. Maybe, you know, they could kill a child, perhaps. I just I have a hard time imagining this bird killing a grown man, but uh, well, you never know. Then again, the Australians literally had a emu war, so, yeah. The Japanese troops and laborers began building facilities on July the 22nd at Buna and Gona, they installed anti-aircraft guns, bunkers, and improved and expanded an airfield there. The Allies would relentlessly bomb their beachheads. While the men worked, Colonel Yokoyama sent Lieutenant Colonel Hatsuo Tsukamoto inland to search for a road to Kokoda. Tsukamoto was a martinet and heavy sake drinker, widely disliked by his men. His expeditionary party was an infantry battalion a signal unit, and a company of engineers in all around 900 men loaded into some trucks. After a few miles, the troops had to abandon the trucks as the road narrowed to just a footpath. By nightfall, they reached a native village at Soputa, seven miles from the coast. They had a few skirmishes with the PIB, but for the most part, it was rather uneventful. Uneventful, but exhausting. A ton of the infantrymen were carrying supplies while slipping into some thick, stinking mud on the track. A transport battalion followed Tsukamoto's force clearing a track to Saputa for vehicles. The following day, they had made it to Awala, around 25 miles inland, where they ran into some more PIB, but this time with some Australian militiamen as well. The defenders were outnumbered and had to fall back, but they inflicted a lot of damage on the invaders. Colonel Tsukamoto instructed his men to push on night and day to the line of the mountain range. Now this PIB was one of two military units composed of local Papuan natives. The other was the Royal Papuan Constabulary, an armed police force that worked in conjunction with the PIB Quite a few of its members actually moved back and forth between the two units. Around 800 men from both forces fought against the Japanese during the Pacific War. All of their privates and most of their NCOs were Papuan, but there were also officers and NCOs that were Australian. The PIB's commanding officer was Major William Watson. Huh, no relation. He was a New Zealander and a well-known rugby player. Watson toured the US and Canada before World War One, and during the Great War, he fought at the horrible Battle of Gallipoli. He had lived for several years in New Guinea as a plantation manager, so when the Pacific War broke out, he rejoined Anzac forces. He was familiar with the local dialects, making him a very valuable asset in New Guinea. The previous month before the Japanese made their landings at Bunangona, General MacArthur and General Blamey had reached the conclusion that the Japanese were going to try and make a run through the Kokoda track to hit Port Moresby. MacArthur went on the record to say, 
Whatever the Japanese plan might be, it is of vital importance that the route from Kokoda westward be controlled by Allied forces, particularly the Kokoda area. General Blamey concurred, and he spoke to General Basil Morris, commander of the New Guinea force at Port Moresby. The 53-year-old Major General was a decorated artillery officer in the Great War, and he had served in the Middle East since December of 1939, before getting his new post in New Guinea. When the civilian government of Port Moresby fled from the Japanese bombings, Morris became the head of the Australian New Guinea Administrative Unit a.k.a. the military government of New Guinea. Now, Morris had 300 men of the PIB and 120 men of the 39th Australian Infantry Battalion in the Kokoda area. The Australian company commander was Captain Samuel Templeton, a man in his 40s who had served in the Royal Navy during the Great War. These were the first elements Morris had on hand to defend Kokoda if the Japanese came, and come they would. It took Templeton and his men eight grueling days to reach Kokoda from Port Moresby, a distance over 100 miles. When General MacArthur learned that such a tiny force had been sent to defend Kokoda, he expressed very large concerns with General Blamey. Blamey in turn ordered Morris to send additional forces, so he sent the rest of the 39th Battalion. With only one small transport aircraft available to land at the Kokoda airstrip, he sent the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel William Owen, to fly ahead of the troops by July the 24th. Owen had previously led a company to defend the beach near Mount Vulcan during the invasion of Rabaul, so he had some valuable experience against the Japanese. By July the 26th, the aircraft had made two more flights, getting around 30 soldiers to Kokoda. The rest would have to make the trek by foot. Meanwhile, Templeton led two platoons to Awala to help the men there who were busy trying to ambush the advancing Japanese. The Australians and Papuans fought a series of gallant skirmishes, but ultimately they were losing. Templeton learned that Colonel Owen was flying to Kokoda, so he placed Major Watson in charge of the Awala defense, and he rushed back to the airfield to report to Owen what was going on in the area. By July the 23rd, the Japanese were sweeping the Awala Road, and the defenders knew they were in serious trouble. On the night of July the 22nd, just before a large enemy advance, Sergeant Katyi, one of the first to join the PIB in 1940, slipped past the enemy lines for several miles, gaining intel before returning back to HQ. The intelligence he provided would allow for further ambushes to be much more planned out, and thus much more effective. On July 27th, Colonel Yokoyama sent a report back to the 17th Army HQ claiming that his engineers could repair the road to Kokoda, thus making it possible for additional troops to reach Kokoda in a four-day march. He then claimed they would soon be able to reach Port Moresby within just eight days. The 17th Army staff were overjoyed at the news, news that was clearly very, very delusional. Templeton got back to the Kokoda field when he got a radio message that up to 2,000 Japanese had landed at Buna. He then ordered men at Awala using a signal to begin fighting rearguard action only and begin to gradually return back to Kokoda. Colonel Owen landed on the evening of July the 24th and he was briefed immediately by Templeton. Owen quickly sent a radio message to Port Moresby asking for reinforcements to be flown in immediately. 
At this time, the Australians and Papuans had withdrawn to a village called Ovi, just a two-hour march from Kokoda. Templeton went to Ovi to resume his command, and the first flight from Port Moresby began arriving on the 26th, with Lieutenant Douglas McLean and 14 members of a platoon aboard. Owen ordered them to rush down the track to support the men at Oivy, as more men began landing. It was clear the Japanese planned to surround them, so Templeton personally went up to the track towards Kokoda to warn those like McLean that they might stumble right into the enemy en route to Oivy. No one saw Templeton ever again. Turns out he was captured by the Japanese, interrogated, and killed. The tale of a Japanese soldier named Kokichi Nishimura tells us that Templeton was interrogated by Colonel Tsukemoto, during which the Australian apparently laughed at his enemy and lied, stating that they were 80,000 strong in Port Moresby. This angered Tsukemoto, who in his rage killed Templeton with his own sword. In his honor, the first point where the Kokoda Track crosses Oria Creek would be named Templeton's Crossing. This was the fate Templeton shared with all the Australians and Papuans who fell into the hands of the Japanese on the island of Green Hell. But that is all I can talk about for today about New Guinea. This pesky week-by-week -week format, eh? Because now we have to briefly venture somewhere else. We're going into the Indian Ocean, where the British were preparing for an operation of their own to support their American allies. After the devastating and humiliating Indian Ocean raid, Admiral Somerville and his Eastern Fleet had relocated to East Africa to support British operations against Madagascar. Yes, French Madagascar. The Allies feared the Japanese might take control over French Madagascar the same way that they took over French Indochina. By establishing it as a base of operations, the Japanese could theoretically threaten supply routes for British forces fighting in North Africa. Though, as I spoke about previously, this was never a real possibility. But the Allies didn't know that. In May came Operation Ironclad the British offensive to seize Port Diego Cerez, near the northern tip of Madagascar. The British began landing forces on May the 5th, with air cover being provided by ferry albacores and ferry swordfish torpedo bombers. The air forces hit Vichy French shipping at Arashat, and they managed to sink the armed merchant cruisers Bougainville and the submarine Berville. While performing this, they also dropped leaflets telling the French to surrender. A lot of people forget about the Vichy French forces when it comes to World War II. Les maudits traites. They absolutely deserve more flack for what they did during that war. They get away with far too much. The Vichy French forces were around 8,000 troops, led by the Governor General Armand Lyonnenet. 6,000 of his troops were Malagasy Tireya, with the rest being Senegalese. The beach landings were met with virtually no resistance, and the British forces quickly seized the coastal batteries and barracks with ease. Over the course of May, the fighting intensified as the Vichy forces were pushed back and the RAF sank more and more shipping. By mid-May, Operation Ironclad was a complete success. The British had seized the northern tip of Madagascar, and in three days of fighting had caused 700 casualties upon the Vichy French at the cost of 109 men dead 
and 283 wounded. After the first day of the invasion, the Vichy forces had sent word to the Japanese asking for their help, but there was not much that the Japanese could possibly do. But the Japanese did send three submarines, the I-10, the I-16, and the I-20, who would arrive around three weeks later, on May the 29th. The three Japanese submarines came to Diego Cerez Harbor to find the HMS Ramillies at anchor. The I-20 and the I-16 launched two midget submarines which snuck into the harbor and managed to torpedo the Ramillies while being depth-charged by British corvettes. One torpedo severely damaged the Ramillies, and the oil tanker British Loyalty was sunk by another. Ramillies would survive, but it had to be repaired in Durban, Plymouth. The crew of a midget submarine, Lieutenant Saburo Akida and Petty Officer Masimi Takamoto were forced to beach their midget sub, the M20, at Nozi Antalikli, and had to walk to Cape Amber to try and get picked up. Both men were caught and killed by Royal Marines before they could escape, but not before taking another Marine down with them. The second midget submarine was lost at sea, with the body of one crewman found washed ashore days later. With Ironclad done, Somerville would send his naval forces on other missions with most of the fleet ordered to protect supply routes from Cape to Aden to Ceylon. Somerville was also very fearful of midget submarine attacks on his harbors, and being pressured by the Americans to mount an operation in the Indian Ocean, he tried to draw the IGN away from the Solomons for a while. This is what formed Operation Stab, a British naval deception in order to distract the IGN from the Solomon Islands. By July the 25th, Somerville gathered a considerable naval force at Ceylon, consisting of the British battleship Warspite, British carriers Illustrious and Formidable, British light cruisers Birmingham, Effingham, and Mauritius, Dutch light cruiser Jacob von Hamskik, British destroyer Inconstant, Dutch destroyer Van Gallen, the Australian destroyers Napier, Nizam, and Norman. Three dummy fleets would sail from Visagatapan, Madras, and Tricomalee on August the 1st, heading in the direction of the Andaman Islands to feint an attack and lure the IGN from New Guinea. Somerville also sent out a fake SOS message reporting that a collision had occurred and it crippled two of his ships and that he was unable to move them. Unfortunately, the IGN did not take the bait for the fake SOS, but the Andaman Islands were reinforced with a seaplane tender, the Sagatomaru, and a bomber unit. Thus, the operation was technically a minor success. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, Go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some more Pacific War content, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War channel over at YouTube. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. The Japanese landings at Buna and Gona would begin the grueling misery for both sides of this conflict over what will be called by the Japanese later on, the Island of Green Hell. The Australians, Americans, and Papuans would have a terrible time fighting off the invaders, but ultimately, it will be the Japanese who will suffer the most, and from a lesser talked about enemy, that of starvation. 
Join us next time as we tackle the Kokoda Trek.